Welcome to the Desert Life Church podcast. We're so excited that you tuned in to hear our weekend message. From wherever you're listening from, we hope you are encouraged by this message. What's funny is uh, one of the things in this idea that people love a good story because deep in our hearts is the recognition that life is a quest and that we are on a quest. If you're really interested in it, you can Google this term, the monomyth. And the monomyth chronicles that, that Harry Potter, that Star Trek, that Shakespeare that biblical stories, that epic myths, that the tales of Hans Christian Andersen, that successful novels, that Lord of the Rings, that the Narnia series, that Dostoevsky, that Tolstoy. Come on, give me some of your favourites. That Luke Skywalker, absolutely. Come on, give me some of your favourite heroes. Superman, Supergirl, Wonder Woman, Wonder Boy. Who else? Aquaman. 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 It's funny you mention that, Rupert, because in, in last week's message, uh, we were talking about nihilism and the meaninglessness of life, and, and as is my fashion, I never get through my introduction in my sermons, so one of the things I was supposed to do in last week's message was I was supposed to, just excuse us while we have a chat, guys, I was supposed to tell the church that uh, the failure of the DC universe under Zack Snyder's directorship is widely attributed to sociologists, psychologists, and anthropologists to his philosophical nihilism, which he has incorporated into his films, leaving the DC universe a dark and meaningless place, and movie viewers... Movie viewers have rejected the Zack Snyder um, DC Cinematic Universe in favour of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is not a hopeless, meaningless place. But see what I'm talking about? See, this is... And, and so far, so far you might not realise it, but even you laughing and saying yes about that shows that Carl Jung knows that there's something deep inside you that values hope and quest and heroism and positive journey, not the meaningless nihilism of life. And so, of course, what happened is that uh, the DC Cinematic Universe has realised that at the box office... The very last Marvel movie made more in its one weekend of being launched than the history of all the nihilistic DC Universe movies, all, all together combined so far, like that terrible travesty on comic book making uh, Batman versus Superman. Who saw it? A nihilistic, hopeless, dark world that robbed you of the meaning of life and sullied Superman's image in your eyes, did it, did it not? And, and so uh, widely, though, social commentators have said the failure of these films is because of the inherent nihilism in it, that people inherently are driven and love hope and hero stories. So then what She's happens not. is the, the, the DC Cinematic Universe switches their approach, and then in Wonder Woman and Aquaman, they created a more inherently hopeful and hope-filled narrative, which has led to it becoming a success again. And so what's interesting about that, universally, that social commentators and psychologists and people who have no friends, no social life, and no job, they sit around thinking about this stuff all day, and pastors, um, then, then what they've said is they said this success and failure at the box office actually is a reflection of something that is deep in the human heart that we actually want heroes to aspire to because whether we like it or not, really something in us, we're the hero of their own stories. But most people don't view themselves heroically, but they are on a quest, they are on a journey. But most people aren't aware of uh, the fact that they're bulletproof and they're perfect. And so when we watch Superman, we don't see ourselves in the story. We see everything that's wrong with us. Isn't that true? We see that he can see through walls and we can't even see the right decision about our bill this week and, uh, and, and it's something that many humans have in common, that you're the hero of your own journey but actually the human experience mainly is not that you're the hero mostly you're the anti-hero 
Now, I wouldn't expect you to know what this means, but most of the time when uh, people resonate with the Harry Potter films, it's not because they're Satanists and they wear hoods and they want to do witchcraft. It's because they recognize the story of a very flawed hero full of self-doubt trying to work out life, and they resonate with that because that's them. They're seeing themselves. One of the reasons why we love and are so frustrated by that whiny, whingy hero, Luke Skywalker. Oh, man, Biggs was right. I'm never going to get off this planet. <laughs> Have you seen? You, you guys haven't seen that? Get out more, people. It's on Netflix. One of the reasons that we resonate with Luke Skywalker, but at the same time we get really annoyed by Luke Skywalker, is because we just want him to be brilliant. We want him to be amazing. We want him to defeat darkness. We want him to win his quest. And we're barracking for him the whole time, but we're so annoyed that he won't step up and shoulder the burden of the heroic life that his potential says he could have, but he's not walking in it. And we resonate with that not because we're film critics, not because we're philosophers. We've never read Carl Jung, but we're us. And when we look at these things and we look at these stories, when we see Luke's failure, what we detest about his weak failure is what we detest about ourselves. When we see Harry Potter's sense of doubt and his confusion, it thrusts us back to look at our own lives. Those of you that are, that are Potterists, I know that's controversial in the church. Um, we, 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 we are forced to question our own self-doubt and we're confronted with our own weakness and we're confronted with our own failures. Do you know, in all all the psychological research on how people make friends, there's a pretty extensive science around this thing called attraction. And I'm not talking about, you know, um, like lovey-dovey stuff and romance and lust and all that sort of stuff. I'm not talking about you, you know, like shaking what your mother gave you at a nightclub and hooking up with somebody. I'm just talking about you, which hopefully you don't. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you making friends. What is it that sometimes you'll meet people and you'll think, you know, we could be friends, and then other times you'll meet people and you think, I don't think we can be friends. And now you would imagine in your mind, you would imagine, wouldn't you, that, that, well, of course, you'd meet someone who's shiny, happy, beautiful, and amazing, and you'd want to be their friend. Is that true? And this is what the science says. The science says the key to having friends is not to be too perfect. Because actually... The better and more perfect someone seems, the more those things are a marker to you that you probably can't be friends with them. And so what happens is we, we, when we don't know about stuff like this, what we do is we put on our best act and we put on perfection and we basically lie and pretend to be amazing. And then we find that we live in a very lonely, ever-shrinking world because we know actually we're not amazing, but we would, be, hate, we would hate other people to know that we're not amazing. So we're incapable of doing this thing called vulnerability, which means we take off our mask, we take off our armor, and we live life with the capacity to be open, which means we have the capacity to be wounded because we're the real us, not the fake us when we relate to people. And so what's interesting about this is we put on our best act, but all the psychological research says that you shy away from people who seem too good to be true and that you're more likely to evaluate potential friends on whether they're as broken as you are. Now, you know this, right? Because have you ever seen the... I've got teenagers in the house, so I live in the world of teenage-based narrative. And and a, a classic teenage narrative is the emo, pouty depressive girl surrounded by shiny happy cheerleaders meets the emo pouty depressive boy who basically dresses the same as the emo pouty depressive girl and he's surrounded by footy jocks and achievers and they both feel like 
rejected outsiders in their in their respective lives. And so what they do is those two birds of a feather, somehow they orbit around each other and their universe comes together. And they finally found true love, which is the worst thing they could do to each other because they've gravitated to people just as broken and just as dumb and just as questioning life as they are. And they pour each other's resources into each other, trying to rescue each other. But of course, the story goes on to show that two halves do not in fact make a whole. Isn't that true? And how many times have we seen it, that, that, that people, they gravitate together? I have seen it as a pastor so many times where relationships are forged and bond over common areas of brokenness. And it's just how we live as humans. I'm not even saying it's right or wrong. It's just an observation about the way we do life. Because we are all, according to Carl Jung, on the hero's journey. But in reality, what we're really on is we're on the anti-hero's journey. And that's why there's a phenomenon number two, which is once upon a time, Superman was the really successful hero. But now modern successful hero stories are peppered. And the most successful stories are not about the perfect Superman. They're about the flawed hero. They're about the, the hero that's not perfect. They're about the deeply ambiguous hero. Who loves a good comic book? No one willing to admit it in church? Yeah, a few of us are. And of course, the flawed hero, the ambiguous hero, the hero that's capable of great things but is pretty selfish, the hero that can do amazing things with their powers but they're petty and superficial, the hero that could save the world but instead they stay home stuffing their face with popcorn, covering themselves in Cheeto dust and watching Netflix. In other words, you and me, friends. So uh, the question of today's message is, are you on a quest? Are you on the hero's journey? Is there a battle to fight? Is there a dragon to slay? Well, the Christian worldview offers us an alternative way to look at life. Rather than just be carried along by this supposed collective unconscious, rather than just get caught in the current of culture, and rather than just sort of have the way we feel and the way scientists and sociologists and psychologists and anthropologists and philosophers tell us that we should think and feel, the, the Bible offers us something, and it offers us a journey. It offers us an option, and here's the option. The option is, you know, you could live the way everybody else lives. Or you could jam that encoding. You could jam that software package and you could embrace a different way to live your life. You could embrace a different narrative. So in the biblical worldview, there is indeed a dragon to slay. There is indeed a battle to fight. And there is indeed evil to overcome. And whether you even believe that story or not, let's say you're here and you don't have biblical faith, doesn't matter. You're still impacted by the evil in the world. You're still impacted by the evil in yourself. You're still impacted by the darkness in the universe around us, whether you believe it or not. So, so far, you and the Bible agree that there are bad things in life. You know, it's not just that bad things happen to bad people. Bad things happen to good people as well. Bad people happen to good people. And good people happen to bad people. The, 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 the sun rises and sets and the rain comes on the righteous and the unrighteous. And we live in a, a broken universe, a fallen universe, a flawed universe. And there is great evil in this universe. And sometimes the scary thing is when we look inwardly, we, we, we see that there can be great evil in us sometimes. Not an accusation against you, but a moment for us to sit as the people of God and, and recognize while we would have the impetus to just pretend everything's fine and put on our masks and hope no one ever knows that we're broken or that we're at fault or what our cycles are or our addictions are. You have to understand that when when you come into this place, the place we come to is a place with a worldview articulated by the gospel that says, actually, you don't have to come in here and pretend to be something. You can come here and just be yourself and find life and find grace and find healing and find goodness for that. Because there is indeed a battle to fight. But you don't have to be the hero of that battle. 
You don't have to be the Superman or the Supergirl or the Wonder Woman of that battle. See, psychologically, one of the things that the hero myth does is it creates a tremendous burden for a human being who feels that they just can't live up to being a Wonder Woman or a Superman. And every now and then, some people feel like they do live up to that. They're called narcissists. They're in love with themselves. And they don't have many friends normally, and their relationships are incredibly broken and incredibly manipulative because everybody around them is abused and broken by the pain of having to live up to the perfect expectations of this imperfect person that thinks they're perfect and wants you to believe they're perfect as well. (sighs) See how complex we make it as humans? We do make it complex, don't we? So the Bible offers us an off-ramp Because see, if we just live out of our unconscious state, letting our shadow, the things deep beneath the surface of our lives drive us, the the self-centeredness of I'm the hero of my own journey, or or the depressiveness of I'm the anti-hero of my own journey, then, then we're kind of like hamsters on a wheel. And the thing about a hamster in a cage on a wheel is the brain and the gray matter of a hamster is so small, it doesn't realize it's not going anywhere when it runs around and around and around on that spinny thing or the modern-day equivalent, people at the gym on the treadmill. And they don't know. They're not going anywhere. You stick a donut at the wall there, and they're like... Or what about people on the treadmill of everyday life, though, the daily grind, getting more pain, more, more pleasure, more possessions, more power, more privilege, see? more approval from other people. It's a a treadmill. You're never going to get there. Last week in our message, we talked about the the teaching from Ecclesiastes. Bad translation, everything is meaningless. Good translation, life is smoke. Life is vapor. You you can't even close your hand around it. It's a a mirage. It's an ever-disappearing shapeshifter, which means you think you want something and you grab it and you open your hand and it's gone just like smoke is. And life is so much like that. So the Bible offers us a way to conceive of life and a picture. It gives us both a mirror and an instructive and cautionary experience to say, you're invited to change the way you do life. And, and, and the ability to change the way you do life is offered to you as a gift from God who wants to liberate you from such a cycle. Now think about that. Some of us, we imagine that God is sitting up in heaven with his stick like Father Boff in my primary school. An ancient Catholic priest who we thought he must have been around when dinosaurs were still roaming the earth. And he had a great big long stick. And every time you, you um, stepped out of line, Father Boff would whack you on the head with his stick. And some of us, you know, we've, 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 and some of us have had parents like that or nanas like that or, you know, our wife's mum or something like that. And, um, and, and, and what, what, so we, we then take those experiences of life and we imagine maybe, maybe that's what God's like. So we live in, 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 in the fear of the Lord in the wrong way, in the way that the Bible doesn't mean when the Bible says the fear of the Lord, which is about awe and wonder and reverence. God, you're amazing. How you would gaze at a sunset. But most of us, we don't gaze at God like he's a sunset. We gaze at God like he's a meteorite about to land on us. Still a heavenly body, still bright, still amazing, but coming to get me. And the Bible offers us a different portrait of God that says God is a gracious saviour, yearning, hungering to liberate you from these cycles and me from these cycles, liberate us from these cycles, to, to offer us transformation and to, to offer us change so that we're not a hamster on a wheel and we're not a hero on a journey, but that we are a human being, liberated from being a human doing. He offers us liberation. So there are many stories in the Bible narratives is their official term we say don't use the word stories because a story might make you think oh you're just saying it's a story it's not true so we say the word narrative which is a very sophisticated way of saying story 
And there are many stories in the Bible. And the purpose of the stories in the Bible, they often get hijacked because you start thinking about the crazy details. You start thinking about, did what, what, that, that, did that really happen? Did, what, did, did that happen? Or is it metaphorical? Or is it pictorial? Or what's going on here? And of course, the important thing is not whether it happened or not. The important thing is that it still happens. That the Bible tells you a picture of what happened. And then it holds a mirror up to your face and said, does it still happen? Is it happening now? Sometimes the story offers a promise. It happened then, and I'm telling you this because it still happens. And you're offered to live in hope. You're, you're, you're offered to live in the encouragement and the expectation and the sense of God orientation to say, if it happens, then it can happen. And so what's happening now is such an important part of reading what happened then. So the Bible offers us a wonderful tale a tale of an anti-hero, actually, an anti-hero. I, I like to think about the prophet Jonah as the Deadpool of the Old Testament. And some of you are too holy to know what that means and you can move on. And some of you love Marvel movies and, and like seeing naughty pictures. And so you understand what I'm saying there. This narcissistic, egotistical hero who has great power but is an absolute jerk. And on the one hand, the literary comic book world or the movie-going audiences, they kind of like him. But on the other hand, he's a real jerk. And of course, straight away, when we read the story of Jonah, we're reading about someone like that, a flawed human being with great responsibility and great power. And with great power comes, and of course, he's a jerk and he does the wrong thing. And of course, we could point the finger at Jonah until we read into the story and get into it. And then we realize we're not reading just about him. We're reading about us. So there's some amazing, amazing genius in the way the Bible is crafted under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. It's just a beautiful thing. And one of the things it does, if you listen to it the right way, is it speaks deeply to the most unbelievable hidden areas of your heart. And most of the time what we do is we tune out the depths of Bible reading because we think we've got it all sorted. So, you know, you've ever heard the saying, familiarity breeds contempt? So when you become over-familiar with someone, there's no mystery in their life. They can't offer you a new insight about life or themselves or the universe. But of course, if you approach them as a mysterious, unique, and holy being, then there's the opportunity for them to offer you a new insight about themselves and about life. And by the way, in all of your relationships, you should never think you know someone utterly. You should always approach a human being with deep mystery. That's why you don't label or characterize people. You never say, oh, you're just, you're just stupid, because you see you've now confined them and robbed them of the mystery that they might not be stupid. They just might have done a stupid thing. So all this from the book of Jonah, and we haven't even opened it yet. Who's excited? Turn to the person next to you and say, go, Joe. So we're going to turn to the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 1. And we're only going to spend a couple of moments here because, of course, time is a finite thing, and we're still working out with our sermons how to do quantum mechanics to finish church on time. Jonah chapter 1, and we're going to pick up in verse 1. The word of the Lord, everybody say the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. By the way, that introduction should surprise you because we already know a few things about Jonah, the son of Amittai. He's already featured in other uh, biblical narratives, other parts of the prophets, the book of Kings. And, and, and what we know about Jonah is he's a deeply flawed prophet because in one narrative we get he's actually a heretic. A prophet comes before King Jeroboam II and says, God is saying, if you don't change your ways, then he is going to bring calamity on judgment on you. And of course, Jeroboam II, he doesn't like that. And so he goes to find a prophet that will tell him what he wants to hear. By the way, lots of us are guilty of that, aren't we? We all choose the chaplain that assuages our sin. And of course, so he goes and he says, I don't want that prophet. And he goes and he finds Jonah and Jonah says, don't worry, everything's going to be fine. The word of the Lord to you is peace, peace, no calamity. 
And so Jonah is constructed in that particular narrative as a false prophet, as a deeply flawed prophet, as someone who sold out to tell the king what he wanted to hear instead of what the word of the Lord was actually saying to the king because, you know, it's dangerous since that guy died for it. So Jonah's a little bit of us. You know what I'm saying? We've all got the potentially to get it right, don't we? But we've also got the potential to get it wrong, don't we? You know, you just have to admit that about yourself. It's not that I'm here accusing you or condemning you, but the thing of the matter is this business of being a human, it's a flawed science, isn't it? It's, it's got highs and lows, and there's many wonderful things about you, but of course there's some very messed up things about you, and the answer from God is not to point the finger and slap you, but to actually pour out his grace upon you and heal the bits that are broken and, and, and superimpose his wonderful presence on, on, the, on the bits that are great. So they become greater. That's why someone said to me the other day, you know, I feel like when you become a Christian, you're not human anymore. It's like, buddy, don't you understand? When you become a believer and God restores you in his image and fills you with his spirit, you're more human than you've ever been before. I thought that was a good idea. So we open with an anti-hero, with a flawed hero. We're not reading about a great Moses or a great Abraham. Oh, by the way, they were flawed as well. We're reading about Jonah, the Deadpool of the Old Testament. He says this, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Tarshish. And he went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and he sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. There's so many amazing things that come to us in this Tale. And I'm just going to give you a couple of introductory marks. You almost know everything you need to know just from the passage that we've read together. First of all, Jonah, Jonah's name. When you're reading ancient Hebrew writing, which we conveniently got an English translation here, but the original stuff comes to us from the Hebrew language. It's just a beautiful language, a beautiful language. When I was not a holy person, I used to collect red wine and cigars. Only because I'm, you know, don't don't believe in putting carcinogenics in my body now, and I'm like redeemed and stuff like that, so I can't do that. So now I collect Hebrew words, and I smell the paper like it's from Cuba. <laughs> Swirl it around under my nose like it's a 2010 Shiraz from South Australia. Jonah's name uh, comes to us with amazing characterization. Actually, Jonah's name means the dove. Everybody say dove the dove. A dove in in the Old Testament especially carries over into the New. The dove is one way of picturing the presence of God's Holy Spirit. You first see this image in Genesis chapter 1 where the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. It's dove-like language. It's very dovey. And then, of course, you get the same image when the new creation is born through the life and ministry of Jesus because Jesus, like the new creation in Genesis chapter 1, is baptized. And when he comes up out of the water, the heavens open and the Spirit descends upon him like a See, it's the same picture. It's the Holy Spirit hovering over the new world in Jesus that's about to be born. And so this picture is commonly used through Scripture of God's presence, God's Spirit as a dove. And so when you meet the guy called Jonah, Jonah the dove, you should sort of think this guy's got potential. This guy is a stand-in for God, Jonah the dove. God wants to send his spirit and heal a nation in great calamity. And God is a gracious God. God is a compassionate God. God is a loving God. And God sees the city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, had great evil, great injustice, had enslaved vast swathes of the known world at the time and was a very, very evil empire by the standards of justice. And eventually they they were overthrown because there was such a rebellion amongst all the nations that they had enslaved that they killed the king and they overthrew them and then the Babylonian powers rose to ascendancy. It was amazing. Um, 
But this hadn't happened yet, so it's at the height of their power. Nineveh is the capital of this ancient evil empire. And the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, someone living in the empire, someone a victim of the empire. And the word of the Lord comes and says, go to that great city of Nineveh and speak to it. And tell them they better change their ways, they better repent, they better turn around, because I am, otherwise I'm going to do something. Now, from the one hand, that can seem like, oh, God's scary. But you've got to remember, Jonah isn't saying, God isn't saying to Jonah, I'm going to destroy Nineveh. He's saying, you better tell Nineveh they're headed for trouble. I want them to turn around. And your understanding of God is carved out in seeing the posture of grace and compassion built up in a God who's not telling you, change your ways, you're being bad. What God is is a loving father saying, let me rescue you from the bad things that are just around the corner from you if you don't live life justly and righteously. So Jonah's the dove, and the story starts with hope. Wow, God is sending the dove, dove man, the dovenator, is, is, is about to go, and, and he's about to visit Nineveh. Well, Nineveh itself is an interesting place because Nineveh means the place of Nin, and Nin was a fish goddess in the Assyrian Empire. So it's like the capital of idol worship and the capital of the worship of the fish god. Pretty funny because Jonah's really going to meet some fish in this story, isn't he? And, um, and, and so God wants Jonah to go to the seat of idolatry, to the seat of injustice, to the seat of anti-God behavior. And Jonah's thinking, all right, I'm going to go with a message of God smiting them. But it's not a message of God smiting them. It's a message of invitation to turn to God, a message of invitation to change. It's a message that says, if you listen to my word, I can change and we can avert disaster together. And Jonah does what's reasonable. He flees. (laughs) He runs away. Jonah runs to Tarshish. What's interesting about this story is a couple of things. Listen to what he says. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and he headed for Tarshish. Who, Who could point to Tarshish on a map? Well, I don't think you can actually because Tarshish doesn't exist. Tarshish was a mythical city that stories were told about in the ancient world, a representation for paradise, a stand-in for paradise. Tarshish was a lot like me saying, oh man, I'm living here in the desert, but one day I'll go to a desert island and I'll just chill out and I'll have like, you know, Hawaiian music. That's Terry Biddlecombe's opportunity to go, yeah. And I'll have like pina colada. No, I mean, I'll have like um, diet Pepsi and I'll, I'll sit in the beach and you know what I'm saying? And what we can do is, what we do is we mythologize places that are better than our place. And maybe it's not a place, maybe if you it's a lifestyle. We imagine an adventurous life. We imagine the good life. When we imagine the good life and when we imagine the adventurous life, we don't imagine our life. We imagine a mythical non-existent life. A life of roaming the high seas, a life of romance, a life of action, a life where there's just more interesting things than me getting up, shaving my beard. Well, I can't do that. Me getting up, combing my beard, um, you know, ironing my pants and coming to work day after day after day after day, 365 days a year, living in a routine, every now and then going on a holiday, every now and then escaping with a vacay. But in reality, what many of us do is we live our lives chasing a non-existent dream. We live our lives thinking there's a better life out there, there's a better place out there, and, and life has become a quest for us where what we just hope is that one day we will have adventure. So now I want you to think about Jonah's um, behavior in the story. God has invited Jonah. Jonah, I could send you to a horrible place to do wonderful things. And instead of going to a horrible place to do wonderful things, Jonah says, it's the life of high adventure for me. I'm going looking for Tajish. Tajish means 
place of great stones, place of precious stones, maybe alabaster, maybe jade, maybe bezel. I don't know what bezel is, but there you go. Um, and, 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 it, and it means the place that... So, so, so a little bit, in a lot of ways, Tarshish is a fictitious place that kind of in some way stands in for like El Dorado, the city of lost gold, or, or Lassiter's Reef, or, or uh, Shangri-La somewhere in Nepal or something. This paradise place that if I could just discover it, life would be brilliant. Do you, do you live your life looking for a non-existent fantasy? Always wondering how life could be better, whether there could be more adventure, life is a quest. So think about this then. Tajish means these things, but Tajish also, how many people, when you look at Facebook, hate it when you see people make a, a wrong indistinction between there and there? All the linguists. Don't you th- don't you th- isn't that difficult? Or your and your. And they don't get the apostrophe. I texted someone the other day saying, glad you're coming. And I did the wrong your. I gave myself the biggest face palm ever. It was Eli Kincher, actually. And I was like, oh, just oh, nothing says I haven't had an education, like not putting an apostrophe in. Um, and and so, so words, they sound the same and they're spelt a bit the same and they mean something different. But phonetically to the ear, they're indistinguishable. Do you get what I'm saying? C and C, there and there, your and your. So, so in, in the ancient Hebrew, the word Tarshish, this is what it means, white dove. So it has a number of meanings depending on which way you interpret it. Place of precious stones, white dove. And Jonah's name means dove. So in a weird way, Jonah is invited into the mission of God, not with him as the hero, but with God as the hero of the story. And Jonah is invited to go to a horrible place, but a place where God might want to do wonderful things. And instead of doing that, Jonah chooses the life of high adventure. God, count me out of what you're doing. God, count me out of what you're planning. God, count me out of going to those nasty Ninevites that deserve your judgment. I don't want to bring your grace and and compassion to them. I want a life of high adventure. I want something else. And so Jonah goes down to Joppa and he goes to a travel agent and he says, listen, I I need to find myself, literally, because he's trying to buy a ticket to the place of white doves. The white dove is trying to find a ticket to the white dove. Jonah is trying to find himself. And I tell you what, there's nothing more depressing than a person who's trying to find themselves, thinking that there's some magical treasure that they'll open the box and find themselves there. But have you ever noticed that you're not actually a a treasure in a box? You're more like an onion. You're made up of layers. And you say, well, I'd like to peel those layers back and see what happens. You're like an onion. There's nothing in the middle. You are the sum total of your thoughts and experiences and the influences that have shaped you. So you can't peel everything back. If you peel everything back, you're deconstructing yourself. And that's good in hipster cafes where they give you the bread and the avocado on the side, but it's not good for souls. So Jonah's on a quest to find himself. <laughs> and it's not, it's not a good thing. The other thing about Jonah is that Jonah's name also has a double entendre. Jonah's name has two meanings. Jonah's name is white dove, dove, representing the presence of God. But you could turn your Bible back to Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 33. And God does something really amazing that Jesus then turns around and says, this is like one of the most amazing things. Because God says to the Israelites, if there are foreigners amongst you, treat them as your neighbors, love them as you would love yourself. Don't mistreat them. Don't oppress them. Don't abuse them. Okay, sounds good, right? We would agree with that. And then that's later on when Jesus says, look, love your neighbor as yourself is one of the greatest things a person can aspire to. So, so in that passage... 
loving your neighbor as yourself is pitted against this other opportunity called mistreating foreigners, oppressing foreigners. And the word for mistreating or the word for oppressing is called Jonah. And it's the same lettering, but it's a verb, not a noun. Jonah's name is obviously a noun, a pronoun. But, but in, in Leviticus 19.33, it's a verb form, Jonah. So Jonah can mean dove, but to do it to someone could also mean to oppress somebody. And what's amazing about Jonah in the story is like we're left to scratch our heads and go, well, is he the dove or is he the oppressor? In the story, he shows us what he's like. We could imagine the stories about God being the oppressor, but God's not the oppressor in the story. Jonah becomes the oppressor because he runs away in selfish narcissism, trying to find himself, looking for adventure on the high seas. He books a ship trying to go to Tarshish. He, he, he hooks up with a bunch of fellow travelers who are also looking for adventure, who are also trying to find themselves, who are also off there. And of course, as is predictable when humans make life all about themselves. Have you ever read the the Chinese proverb, a person wrapped up in themselves is a very small package? And it is. And like what happens when people live a a, a life trying to find themselves, a selfish life, a a life where on the one hand they've got an option to help other people become great in horrible places, but instead they're going in search of better places, going in search of treasure, going in search of adventure, going to peel back the layers of their lives and finding themselves. And then they all get together and of course it results in a storm, doesn't it? Jonah gets on this boat, he goes off to sea with these sailors and a massive storm erupts. Now, here's where trick number two that the author of Jonah plays on you as we read the book of Jonah. Trick number two is Jonah's journal journey, well, it is like his journal, is chronicled in a series of downward spirals. And in fact, a wordplay occurs now all the way through the rest of the book on the word down. Words like this, fell, down, sink, spiral. So this is what the the author of Jonah tells us. First of all, Jonah is is called by God, and instead of responding to God's call, he goes down to Joppa. You know, you could say he went east, he went west, he went north, he went south. But the author decides not to tell you the geography, but to talk to you about his spirituality. Because going to Joppa isn't wrong in itself, but when you're running to Joppa away from God, you're not going east or west, you're going down. You are sinking. The downward journey number two is that Jonah gets on board the boat and then he goes down into the hull on the boat. So now he has sunk to a new level. He is sinking to a below the waterline type of life. The next amazing thing is that for some reason in a violent storm and Hebrew people in the ancient world especially were super scared at sea. As you can see from the disciples' reaction to the storm, these fishermen are panicking while Jesus is asleep in the boat. And, and, and while all this is going on, there's panic in the storm. Jonah is fallen, it says. Jonah had fallen into a deep sleep. Now, what's amazing about Hebrew writing is when Hebrew writing says something like he's fallen into a deep sleep, they're telling you something physical, but they're not just telling you something physical. They're using physicality as a picture of what's going on spiritually. And so this picture of Jonah going down to Joppa, Jonah going down into the bowels of the ship, Jonah going down into a deep sleep, it's all the same word. His life is chronicled by the quest for his own heroism, by his own journey. He's trying to find himself. And the journey of Jonah trying to find himself is just a journey that keeps taking him down and down and down and down. Hey, haven't we experienced that? 
Don't we know people that have experienced that when, 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 when life is all about you and, and, and you're running from God and, 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 and you have great potential and great calling and you could be used by God to do amazing things, but when you're running from it and you're off doing your own thing, life is just like a downward spiral and Jonah's holding a mirror up to us saying, look what happens when life's all about you. If God is transforming your life through this ministry, please consider joining us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give at desertlifechurch.org forward slash give. Thank you for listening and don't forget to subscribe to enjoy more messages like this. Have a great week.